Guten morning, Paul. Guten morning, Paul. Come in, come into the office. Pull up a chair. Have a seat. How are you feeling? What's on your mind? How are you doing? What's going on? What's up? Uh, hi, Dr. Herpy Snapper. Um, I was just wondering, uh, you know, it, it seems like uh, a, a really long time since we've talked. It's, you know, has uh, been a, a considerable amount of time since we have chatted and had one of these sessions. Uh, uh, nine? You were in here last week. We, we were just chatting the other week. You said something similar last time as well, Paul. It's, it's only been like a week and then we had maybe a few weeks between sessions before that. What are you talking? It it feels like it has been a year. Yes, it does. Yes, indeed. No, it hasn't. No, um, I think you're incorrect, my friend. Ah, But uh, I am not mistaken. That has never happened before. Uh, We had a similar conversation last time. What on earth is going on? But what are you talking about? Oh, I'm sorry. I am doing what we did last time. But this time, I'm doing it right. Really? DCOCD, the DC Events Podcast, where we're looking at every single DC event from Crisis on Infinite Earths in order on up, and we have reached the very dark year of 2007, and the event that was initially known as Countdown, but soon became known as Countdown to Final Crisis, and this was borne out by uh, Dan DiDio going, we did 52 and it was fantastic, let's do it again, except I'm going to have a lot more control because those pesky riders kept bossing me around, so uh, I'm going to assemble a new team and we'll do it. It'll be 52 done right, and that's an actual quote. But uh, So he assembled a team of Paul Dini, uh, Jimmy Palmiotti, Justin Gray, Tony Bedard, Adam Beach and Sean McKeever, and a whole bunch of artists, uh, too many to mention, and uh, they couldn't get J.G. Jones to wear every single cover, which was one of the strengths of 52, so they got a whole bunch of artists to do covers, including Andy Cubitt, Ed Bennis, Tim Townsend, Maria Bennis, uh, the Dodsons, Shane Davis, Matt Banning, J.G. Jones did some, <laughs> Talent Caldwell, Ian Churchill, Norm Ratmond, Claudio Castellini, Carl Kershaw, Pete Woods, Stefan Roos, and Scott Collins. And it was all edited by Mike Martz, and eventually Mike Carlin joined, because I believe Mike Martz lost the will to live halfway through. Um, but I'm not covering this alone. Today I am joined by people from two different uh, continents. So I've got Steve Lacey from the Fantastic Cast, if everyone remembers Steve. And I have Tim Price, uh, who I met at HeroesCon. Did you know I've been to HeroesCon, everyone? I remember HeroesCon. That was awesome. We had a great time there. Steve, weren't you there? I thought I could I, remember I sworn you were there. I have not been to HeroesCon, which I, I think um, is a first for someone appearing on this show. <laughs> yeah, hello. Thanks very much for having me. Um, even though it's for this. Yeah, I'm sorry I made you guys read this, um, and I, I'm I'm going to confess here. I didn't reread it. I I'm going to cover it from my memory, and for that I'm downgrading myself to the semi position. So um, you guys are the full OCD this time. I mean, it's all very well. When do we get the professional psychiatric help available to the primary hosts of this show? <laughs> You call that professional? That's very generous. <laughs> <laughs> uh, after, after this, we'll take what we can get. I'll just say right now. 
Alright. Yeah. Here's the unpleasant task. What is this about? Um, Tim, do you think you could mention what half of it's about? Maybe Steve could finish it off? Oh, I, I could mention what half is about. Let me see if I can just dig that out of my brain. Oh my, and then I'll, then I'll throw it in the bin and be all happy. Okay, so, in the beginning of the countdown, we have, I counted seven separate plot threads, and they didn't come together in any meaningful way in the first half of the series. So, strap in, here we go. Plot A. The Monitors learn the whole multiverse is in danger from an upcoming great disaster. One Monitor named Solomon decides to kill any universe-hopping or death-flaunting individuals, starting with Dula Dent, the Joker's daughter. Another Monitor asks the Source for help, and it instructs him to find Ray Palmer the Atom. So that Monitor recruits two death-flaunters, Donna Troy and Jason Todd, to help, and they name this Monitor Bob. And they manage to recruit Brian Joy, the new Adam, to assist, which gets Solomon, universe helping mad. Ryan as the Adam is too boring for the series, so they ditch him and pull in Kyle Rayner to make things interesting. Uh, spoiler, it doesn't work. Oh, and Monarch returns, building an army to conquer the multiverse, recruiting metahumans from lots of Earths, like the Crime Society and the Extremists. Okay, plot M. A depowered Mary Marvel seeks out Black Adam, who, give her, who gives her all of his power, and turns her power-hungry and evilly. She looks for help from various people, including getting the attention of our favorite ex-wife, Jean Loring Eclipso. Along the way, Mary manages to mop the floor with Shadow Pat. Right, plot R. We have Trickster and the Pied Piper are recruited back to the rogues and kind of sort of help kill Bart Allen, which gets the whole world after them, go figure. The Suicide Squad nabs them and cuffs them together, but they escape and go on the run, um, running afoul of lots of villains and heroes along the way. Plot J. Jimmy Olsen starts exhibiting a variety of random superpowers like stretching, super speed, and porcupine quills. It only happens when his life is in jeopardy, which happens a lot as he's starting to investigate who's killing the new gods. We've already seen the deaths of Light Ray, Sleaze, and the Deep Six. Jimmy tries the superhero bit as Mr. Action, but fails to successfully join the Titans or the JLA. Also, he knows things he shouldn't, like Clark Kent as Superman, uh, and then adds up, ends up being Shanghai to Apocalypse by Forager, which is great for someone whose powers kick in when your life's in jeopardy. Plot K. The Legionnaire Karate Kid is in the present looking for a cure for a disease he has, which is exactly the opposite way to use time travel when you're trying to cure yourself. But it's not his fault because Brainiac 5 made him stay in the past. Thank you, Brainiac 5. One part of Triplica Girl calling herself Una joins him on the mission, because nothing's more helpful than having a member who doesn't have any powers. They join, they try Oracle, some nobody named Mr. Orr, not named Mr. Nobody, uh, Buddy Blank and Brother I and end up in Bloodhaven seeking some help from Firestorm. Plot H. The former side kitten, then short-lived Catwoman Holly Robinson, moves into an Athenian women's help shelter run by the goddess Athena. During that non-stop toga party, and barely related to Amazon's attack, she befriends Harley Quinn. Yes, Harley Quinn. Then it turns into Amazon Idol, with the women fighting each other for Athena and the privilege of joining the Amazons on Amazon Island. Plot D. Darkseid appears a couple of times not doing anything. Issue number 26 reveals the full title of the series is Countdown to Final Crisis. And that gets you through the first half of the series. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it's, it's, I'm just reliving the magic, and it's, it's, it's moving me. <laughs> Steve, do you want to pick up from there? Uh, I mean, I've got two versions here. The very short version is, it doesn't matter, none of this matters. <laughs> uh, so I'll just leave all those plots hanging. But, I mean... Uh, Everything eventually does converge. Ray Palmer is found. Spoil. Well, I mean, all of this is spoilers, but then again, uh, you're not coming into this wanting to not be spoiled. Um, Ray Palmer is found in various microverses. There's something to do with him trying to save the entire multiverse from, um, uh, I won't call it, this not streptococcus, is it? Virus thingy. What's it called? I didn't write this down. Uh, 
doesn't matter. The Mordecaucus virus. The Mordecaucus, that's it. The Mordecaucus virus, which apparently will destroy all life as we know it. Um, Holly ends up training uh, on Paradise Island with Harley Quinn, um, and it turns out that Hippolyta is actually Granny Goodness, and then everyone disappears through a boom tube. There's lots of boom tubes, by the way, just to be clear. Jimmy carries on with his powers. He shags an insect, um, which was just one of the sort of weird bits of this. Uh, and it, it goes through a boom tube. Um, Karate Kid and Trip Girl uh, end up not going through a boom tube, but they ended up reactivating the uh, Brother Eye satellite uh, and go with him, it, to Apocalypse. Also some stuff involving Buddy Blank, uh, but you can ignore that because there's a totally different Buddy Blank later on in the story. Um, the the trickster dies um, and is handcuffed to Piper uh, because this is one of those buddy comedy things uh, and, and is dragged across the desert and eventually Piper cuts Trickster's hand away so he can carry on walking without dragging a corpse behind him. It's all really weird. Also, Trickster's super homophobic and that homophobia continues after death. So, yay! Um... <laughs> In one of the sort of weird bits, the entire episode is devoted to Superboy Prime, now called Superman Prime, thanks to some kind of legal thing. I forget exactly what it was at the time. Um, but it was to do with why they couldn't use um, Superboy in the aftermath of Infinite Crisis. He tortures Mr. Mix's Pitalik for a bit, and that's the entire issue. Okay, everyone ends up on Apocalypse, uh, where uh, Brother Eye takes over the entirety of Apocalypse. New gods keep dying left, right, and centre. Everyone leaves Apocalypse... Um, I genuinely can't. It was weeks ago that I read this and you could not pay me enough money to give it a reread. So I can't remember how that plot ends, but it's not important. Uh, Karate Kids ends up on Earth 51, which seems to get destroyed at least twice during this series. Whoopsie. He dies. Triplicate Girl dies. Mordecai goes wild and takes over the whole Earth. And at the end of it, it turns out it's Commandy's world. Um, Jimmy Olsen absorbs all the superpowers of the new gods because the source wants him to do that. He ends up having a massive fight with Darkseid in Metropolis, and then Darkseid dies because Orion turns up to fulfill his destiny. And then the series ends with like there's some stuff with the monitors. There's all this multiverse stuff, which is really not interesting at all, but the monitors end up trying to take over everything. Then they're sort of put in their place, and then it ends with Donna Troy, Carl Rayner, Ray Palmer, and Forager, who is definitely a character that people care about, honest, saying that they're <laughs> going to look over the monitors and take care of them, all of which lasts exactly zero pages because Final Crisis picks up with the monitors gone. So what was the bloody point, eh? Wow. Okay, that, well, that's that's wonderful. <laughs> um... <laughs> I mean, it's wonderful that you guys read it for me and, uh, and did all that synopsizing. Um, usually I would mention things that people missed at this point, but uh, no. Um, <laughs> so, all right, let's, let's do uh, a simple question. Is there anything that you like about the series, uh, Steve? Not really, but the bit where Brother Eye takes over the whole of Apocalypse was there genuinely it, it's one of the few plotty things that goes oh this is really kind of batshit cool and also though the fact that uh, big chunks of this series appear to be about throwing together various kirby concepts that don't normally sit by side by side the three big ones being uh omak commandy and then obviously the new gods who spend most of this series dying in various ways um or, uh, because there was a an also a time series called death of the new gods done by jim stalin um but it's never actually mentioned in the main book who killed the new gods it's just tossed away like there's no revelation it's like what the hell um if anyone's interested and no no nobody is um but it, it was you know when the forever people come together and become uh, is it infinity man anyway infinity man kills everyone yes oh basically nice. what about you tim where what, what's the best bit for you uh it's hard to trying to scratch away at the surface of this turd and find something that you really loved about it but um it, jimmy olsen's powers at least were a nod to the silver age of seeing the kind of wacky powers that Jimmy was getting like every other month with him stretching and getting super speed and then turning into basically turtle boy at mm -hmm. the end for the big smackdowns slugfest with dark side. So I, it, you got some appreciation for at least those kind of nods to the, to the, to the story. Um, but boy, it was just such a hot mess. 
<laughs> it was just all over the place and so hard to follow everything along um, and getting characters added and dropped at, at, on a whim issue by issue um, just helped you had no sense of continuity to the whole thing it was also Which, interesting that there were some back there were some backups in in many of the issues too and it was a uh, some of them were some of them were a nice gem here and there um but there was like one whole series where the backups were the whole origin of the DC multiverse, which means before pre-crisis as well as through crisis and afterwards. So it was really kind of talking about the history of the comic books even more so than the universe. So it was it, but that was done by um, Dan Jurgens, and he he did as good a job as he could. But it's like, and there's nothing wrong with it. But it's like you're retelling us things we already know. So there's not a whole well, lot to that. Kind of, the, the plot stuff is the, absolutely the least interesting part about this, but the way that Countdown was really explicitly framed as, um, you know, 52 again. So 52 had the 10-part history of the universe uh, mm. by Dan Jurgens. This True. was the history of the multiverse. The, then it turned into the backups in 52 were Secret Origins of Heroes. The backup it's in Countdown was Secret Origins of Villains. Now, the, the Heroes ones had a higher hit rate, but there are, as you say, some real gems in those villain ones. The Bizarro mm-hmm. one is great. Um, Brian Bolland does some really rare interior pages for the Joker one. Although it's obviously very framed around killing jokes, so your mileage may vary based on that. There are some lovely bits in there. John Bogdanov did a couple. I know that because I have signature on a couple of issues of Countdown. I sort of handed them over very shyly. You get the gold star for getting any issues of Countdown signed. <laughs> Just right there. I'll, I'll, I'll bow to right now, right there. That's awesome. <laughs> but, um, but, but other structural stuff that's really interesting to look at is, is 52 had its core team of four writers, but Countdown had its head writer, Paul Dini, and then other people would come in and do odd scripts here and there. But it felt like everything really sat with one person. Having heard a lot about how 52 was managed and run by the writers, it feels like one person, you're really asking a lot. How he managed to do this and his great detective comics run side by side, I've no idea. Um, and then Keith Giffen, who was the layout artist for all of 52. He took the first few months of Countdown off because, hey, he'd done weekly layouts for an entire year. Uh, then he came back and did about three or four months of layouts before he slipped away from that and was credited as something like a consulting producer or something like that. I forget exactly what. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, it, it's also really noticeable that as soon right. as he's gone, some really skeevy stuff like loads of upskirt shots of Mary Marvel creep in. There's some really horrible artwork in terms of the, the objectification of this teenage girl. I, I, yuck. Oh, yes. Very true. Ugh. Mm. And when, when Dan Dio says, oh, this is 52 done right, I mean, yeah, that's a glib and, and crappy statement. But it also made me thinking, mm-hmm. well, f- 52 is this thing that gathered momentum, but its very structure was designed to have nothing to come after it, which is why you have these these miniseries that weren't very good and just sort of picked up little bits. Whereas Countdown was all this focus and it was going to explode into Final Crisis and the two were definitely going to match up. This was definitely going to lead into Final Crisis. Definitely, definitely. Sorry, what are you doing, Grant Morrison? Oh, crap. <laughs> <laughs> it was wedged into a space that looked like a... You know, it's like trying to park your car in a space and then you get your car half in and you realise it's not a space and you've wrecked your car. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I bought this weekly. <laughs> and boy... I did Yeah. Because 52 had been such a ride. It was so mm-hmm. good. Yeah. yeah. And I, there are a few things that gave me some that gave me some joy was some of the little... Easter eggs or tidbits that you could pick up on if you've been a long-time reader of other things. Like there's one point where our multiverse hopping group comes across a, a young sorceress girl who is depicted very much like Misa from the Legion of Superheroes, the White Witch. But she's all red, so you know, jokingly you could say that she's a Scarlet Witch, but that's wrong universe, wrong universe <laughs> there. But that was still kind of a fun little nod there. While I didn't really need to know, the, didn't need to have the mystery of Dula Dent solved, I did appreciate the design and color scheme of the of the jokester, her actual father. That was kind of fun to see. I didn't really need to have, I didn't really need to see it because that was part of the fun of the character was not knowing who she was and the fact that she didn't really seem to know who she was. So that's one of the things that with the series too is that it kind of tried to answer and solve some things that. We didn't need to have solved to enjoy the DC 
comics or the DC universe as a as a storyline, like where mm. the great disaster where the great disaster came from, how it happened. Now that you've kind of put a pin in it that it's now part of this universe, it's actually less interesting because now it's no longer seems like how is it a threat to the primary timeline, the primary multiverse, uh, the primary part of the universe that that this happens. That's that's part of the threat that we've had. Like we have the modern day great disaster legion. Having that now be established as not being something that happens as part of the continuity almost takes away the fun of of and now thinking that Commandy is no longer part of the mainline universe and the other characters that are from there that's kind of that's kind of disappointing. Well, I, I don't think having Commandy now removed from the primary DC universe affects this because nothing was done with it after this point. Mm. Um, uh, you know, it, it got to the point where it set all that up and he's in in the bunker and Buddy Blank and all of that. And then that's it. They they never go back to it because of the events of Final Crisis. Mm-hmm. And then you're in that kind of two year gap before um, uh, the reboot into the new 52. But it, it's amazing rereading this because the first time I read it, I was fully into everything going on in DC at the time. And just once you start reading it, where it's kind of duplicating scenes happening in other books, like the early scenes with Karate Kid in the where he's imprisoned in, in I think, the Batcave, which uh, all go th- uh, run through the um, JLA JSA lightning saga um, story mm-hmm. when you've got all the stuff tying into Amazon's attack and how little any of those events make sense once you take away the fact that no one remembers anything really about that crossover. It's a very peripheral thing, but the series treats it to the point where it's just like, well, of course you're reading uh, Amazon's attack, therefore we're not going to explain anything. And it was astonishing just mm-hmm. how badly it read as its own thing without the connective tissue to the rest of the DC universe. Mm. Oh yeah, I agree with that all the way. I mean, I, I, I catch. I was reading JLA at the same time, so yeah, getting the Karate Kid hook through there. But I also was not reading a lot. I wasn't really reading Green Arrow at the time. So when it's when it wended through into Black Canary's Bachelorette Party and the Green Arrow Black. Oh yeah, that was a. It's like that was such a throwaway scene. It's like, why are our two villains who are handcuffed together ending up here of all places? (laughs) And I swear that is literally because there there was a a, a, an oversized one shot for the wedding. Mm Yeah. So it was the big event of the month. So this had to tie. I mean. as much as I hate to say this got good because it didn't, but it felt more of its own thing the more it pulled away from what was happening in the DC universe. Mm-hmm. Mm. And that gave a sense of it really treading water and struggling to justify itself for probably the first four to five months. Oh, that's not good. <laughs> no, no. And well, and but I, I would also dare that it didn't really get much better later. Because if we look at the the miniseries that were that put out at this at that time too. Because I, yeah. I did re-re- I did reread Heaven Help Me. I did re uh, actually I hadn't read them the first time through, um, but for this one I did. Uh, I read Countdown Arena. No, with, uh, no. Uh, I, no, I did it. I did it. Uh, Death of the New Gods and Lord Havoc and the Extremists. I did read all three, oh. of them. and but that's only because they're on the DC Universe app. So, <laughs> so, so I was already paying well, for the app, so I was able to read them. Thank. you. So, you know, I could thank, in quotes, the DC Universe app for having those there. But, oh, my gosh, the, they, even there, they, they showed just how much story that they kind of opened up in Countdown. But there's no conclusion and you have no reference to even what happens in those series. You just come back to the, the, the characters from that might come back, like Monarch and his, his army will show up again. But you have no idea how the army got formed or how they got chosen because all the things that happened were over in Arena. And nothing from Arena mattered or was referenced after that. Yeah, if you, if you thought if you thought the main series was brutal to the characters, oh, there's some really gross things happened to our to to these various characters in Arena. Oh, very unsettling. And we could vote on them. Mm. Um, <laughs> you, could, you could go and vote over at a website for who would win various bouts and join the army, and probably be penciled in the bottom left of a two page spread in countdown number seventeen, shall we say? Um, it was astonishing. Oh, um, there were that two. I think so much. <laughs> yeah, there were two 
uh, other countdown series which I remember reading at the time. One is Countdown to Adventure, which basically picked up Starfire, Animal Man, and Adam Strange from Fifty Two and carried on with their adventures, which was not so bad. I mean, I, not so Animal good. Man was uh, yeah, but not so bad either. <laughs> but those, those three were sort of the, the unannounced stars of Fifty Two because once Booster Gold quote unquote died, he they sort of took over his place in the narrative and as the sixth storyline. But then you have Countdown to Mystery which is fascinatingly irrelevant, not least of which because the story has no ending. So it was all about Kent Nelson and Dr. Fate, as Dr. Fate, but it was written by Steve Gerber. And in a what you could consider to be a very Steve Gerber move, he went and died before he completed the script to issue eight. Um, so, so that left to them with, with basically a, a, an unfinished story. And these things are never great. I mean, obviously, first of all, um, the fact that Steve Gerber died is, is a horrible thing to have happened. But when you have oh, an yes. unfinished story that is a tie-in to your big kind of narrative structure for the year, how the hell do you do anything with that? And what DC decided to do was say, yeah, we're not even going to attempt to recreate this ending. So for the last issue, we're going to invite three creative teams to come up with an ending. You can pick and choose which one you like, or you can say, right, whatever Steve's is, there's no way of having that. But we, we're going to leave it on this uncertain and varied end. And I, to be honest, I think I prefer that to something like, say, when Marvel tried to finish off Amiga the Unknown in The Defenders. <laughs> uh, and they just kind of... Because mm. that, that provided a definitive end to it, which you can take or leave. Here, it was everything was left up in the air. If you didn't like it, you could leave it. Yeah, it was a difficult choice to make, but I think it was kind of the right one. And then they did a whole bunch of one shots in the multiverse, which was a bit I seem to remember taking place in Countdown. So the idea was you got the the Jason Todd, Carl Rayner, Donna Troy characters hopping from multiverse Earth to multiverse Earth, most of them with which we'd seen before. And I'd completely forgotten they took place in one shot. So all this stuff around like Red Rain and Red Sun and other Elseworlds series mm-hmm. that don't start with red uh, barely show up in here. <laughs> so there was that. Yeah, and that also had um they had they had one of the series was called the search for Ray Palmer and I and I only the first That's issue the one, was yeah. on the was only on the uh, only the first issue was on the um, DCU app which had the Gotham by Gaslight universe is what where they went yes. to um, which was interesting and uh, it was a, it was, a, it was an interesting take but again it's like uh, how does this, this why did we need to revisit this place and corrupt it. With, with, with the actual DC universe, it's it's one of those things where it's a it's its whole point is to be kind of like a backwards, a steampunkish sort of universe. It's like don't get into multiple dimensions there. It's like ah, uh. yeah. I mean, I would liken Countdown to Final Crisis as you know, we, it was billed as being this is the herald to the next event, and you you know it's going to be really special and it will lead into the next event, and then this stream of diarrhea just comes out everywhere. <laughs> Oh, okay. <laughs> that's that's tough. Yeah, it it is probably. I mean, the DC universe had had a pretty good run of events, you know, up till this, and then this one, you know, it really just drops the ball, and the ball deflates, and then it's you know, <laughs> yeah, and you you lost that sort of continuity drive through events after this. I feel. Yeah, I mean, yeah. when Final Crisis started. Pretty much the only things that were confirmed as tying in were the destruction of Earth-51, which is why Nick Sorotan is working in a burger bar. It makes sense-ish. Um, and then beyond that, it's uh, Mary Marvel going evil. But in Countdown to Final Crisis, it's very much depicted as, as her choice to do, although with various manipulations, she hops back and forth. Whereas in Final Crisis, it's because Dark's, um, not Dark Side, Desaad is literally inside her. Mm. Yeah, just the, the lack of connective tissue on this thing that's supposed to lead up and tie in seamlessly, and perhaps do all the setup stuff that Grant Morrison would have otherwise have just left hanging, which it turns out he did leave hanging because it didn't work. Um, oh, it was so frustrating yeah. at the time to realise none of this mattered. I, I agree. I had a whole lot of. I'll just jump in with a couple, couple of quick little things. Is that it, it, the, my frustration point also was like so many things that were left undone. It's and just stories that didn't make any sense. But like throwing in the mix of issues, why? I didn't know understand what that was for. If if Solomon the Monitor wanted to target the Earth Hoppers, why did we not see Power Girl once in all that time? 
because she's like the big, most prominent one in there. And then we get like the sod and Granny Goodness's plans. And I really, I read the whole series, you know, before this. I still have no idea what the two of them were trying to accomplish. I don't know. They were just there, and it didn't make any. It just didn't make the final. The final thought I had on it for my about how I summarized it was like it seemed to me it's like what if Bob Haney hated superheroes and wrote a series about them? That's what this felt like. <laughs> It was just as, as crazy and insane as something from Bob Haney, but with zero love. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. no, you're just playing to the hosts, eh? I am. <laughs> That's, I, I'm not, I don't have my own podcast, so you know I got to do it. I got to do what I can. <laughs> Well, I think that's a high point of this uh, discussion. So why don't we take a, a break and we'll listen to uh, the uh, trailer for the uh, Fantastic Cast, excellent podcast. Oh. And then we'll come back and we'll do some scoring on this dirty pile of crap. The Fantastic Cast is your guide to the Fantastic Four from the beginning of the Marvel Age of Comics. Each week, Steve Lacey and Andy Leyland cover each issue, spin-off, guest appearance and cameo of Marvel's first family. And in 2019, we begin our journey through the neon decade, the 1980s. Join us as we cover... All-time classic runs from John Byrne and Walt Simonson. She-Hulk and Sharon Ventura join the Fantastic Four. The Invisible Girl No More, here comes The Invisible Woman. Spin-off series including Marvel 2-in-1 and The Thing. Marvel's Secret Wars, The Trial of Reed Richards and more. Find us at thefantasticast.com on iTunes and all other podcast services. The Fantasticast. Insert catchy tagline here. Wait, what? Okay, so here we are, back for the scoring. Now, the way the scoring works is um, there's two people who are main OCD and they get the full amount of their scores put in. There's four categories. They get to add um, scores out of ten for each of those. And there's a semi-OCD person who gets their scores halved in the same way and they only get to uh, add a total of uh, up to 20. And that gives us a total out of 100. Um, I think you ought to know how it works in like, episode 31, but anyway. So... Um, <clears throat> So, Tim, how do you feel this is for eventiness? All right, let's see. So, well, it, it tried to use the things that worked before. You know, we saw in Crisis and Infinite Crisis that we had a huge cast. It crossed over into other series, like we saw Amazon's Attack briefly, the death of Flash Bart Allen, the Green Arrow Black Canary Wedding. And then we pulled in all these multiverse versions of our heroes and stuff. The stakes were high. Heroes die. Worlds die. And it just doesn't matter. <laughs> it attempts to answer, like I had before, it tries to answer, what is the great disaster? And we didn't need to have it answered. At the end, I just didn't care about any of this, and none of it mattered to even the other series. Everything that, everything that mattered was tied up in the other series and not, ma- not mattered here in, in Countdown. So I had to give it a three. Ooh, what about you, Steve? I went slightly higher. Um, the ambition of this series to create a backbone for a year's worth of storytelling in the DCU, uh, leading into the big Grant Morrison final crisis, the, the sheer number of various time mini series, uh, both either with a countdown prefix or without. That leads me to go, yeah, that this was setting itself up to be a big event. I mean, it completely and utterly failed, but for eventiness, I'm giving this a five. <laughs> it basically points for effort, shall we say. Yeah. And what do you think of the writing there, uh, Steve? Oh, dear. The writing is terrible, um, both from the plotting. Uh, well, I say both. I've got many things to judge us on. The plotting is poor, just the general plotting, the structure, how things flow from issue to issue is really bad. The, in fact, it tries to not be real time, but also can't work out what time it actually is, um, is bad. The way it's all been put on one person's shoulders to dole out to scripters rather than a collaborative team working on it, trying to get the best thing. I mean, this is by far and away the worst thing Paul Dini's ever written um uh, and it's basically it's getting a two <laughs> wow and uh tim do you have a different score for that or uh oddly i do not have a different score i also gave it a two that is pretty scary um now, now straight up i have huge respect for paul dini i love the work on the dc animated series of all their stripes so i know he's a hugely talented person so how he ended up on this mess 
is just dumbfounding. And the other writers just there was nothing they could there I felt that there was little they could do about it. This was just a train wreck that was going to happen. Um the spotlighted characters were either not interesting or not effective. Um and as you saw from the the first half of the series, like doing so many different parallel plot lines was just painful and hard to keep tr- hard to keep straight. It's like they looked at Fifty Two, saw how successful they'd done on it, looked at all the lessons they learned about doing a, a weekly series like that, and decided to do the exact opposite. It's like, how did you make all of the mistakes become the plan? It's just painful. It's just painful. The only thing is that it was actually a fast read. And if it had been dense, I might have gone Superman Prime on the comics myself, and there would have been worlds destroyed all over the place. But yes, it just gets a it, – it, the writing, I'm sorry, it just gets a two. Gosh. I, I, one, what, just one thing on the writing, because one thing uh, that really leapt out to me is when Harley Quinn shows up in the series – how different she is to the Harley that I know now. In my mind, having read her for 20 years, there isn't a huge amount of change between sort of early 2000s Harley and the current day one. But going back to the 2007 Harley, I was like, oh, oh, you are, you are not the Harley Quinn that I genuinely love nowadays. And yeah, that's obviously a huge amount down to Amanda Comer and Jimmy Palmiotti there. Mm. She doesn't have the agency back then, did she? No. And it just, it doesn't, work in either thought harley quinn in a in a women's shelter run by athenians with her history there should have been some great stuff to get from that and very little comes to the fore all right steve what about the art steve oh me uh, so I, I was slightly more generous on the artwork the artwork is incredibly variable there is some hideous stuff in there um sorry hazus says but your work in here is some of the worst that i've seen as well uh there is a point where for about eight issues or so, the same three artists are working on the book, and you can see the differences very notably in quality. There is some really good stuff in here. I think one of the cubits, I can never tell which one is which, sorry, um, not the daddy, but one of the cubit <laughs> sons did, did some stuff in here. And, and you do have some good stuff. You also have some really bad stuff, and you have some very ugly stuff as well, like, for instance, the upskirt shots on Mary Marvel that are just completely and utterly oh. unwarranted. So for that, it's getting a four. Oh, and teams <laughs> okay this uh, we're going to continue there i also gave it a four i mean i f- i felt like the covers were okay but i could i can't pick out a memorable one in the whole bunch and like we said the art the art style was really what was also ext- extremely inconsistent as well as its quality i mean it, it just just even the, if the quality was high and the styles were different you could work through that but It'd be very different styles and just stink sometimes. It was just, there was some painful arts. And, and I, and I agree completely that any skeevy shots of Mary Marvel were just completely unneeded. Uh, that those turned me off incredibly. And it really hurts because I had some favorite artists that I saw in here, like Jim Califiore and Scott Collins. Ron mm. Lim did some, Ron Lim did some issues. Ron yeah. Lim! Oh my gosh. How and I'm a huge fan of Califiore. Oh yeah, I, I, I love this work, but it just it the tone of his work been followed by Ron Lim. Oh, that's way too jarring. <laughs> yeah, uh, and then we, and then we get like you know Howard Porter was in there some, and Jamal Eigel did some work. We even got like issued Jim Starlet, and you know, and then Keith Giffen because I'm a huge Keith Giffen fan, and for him, and I know and I know exactly what you're talking about in terms of the structure of the artwork was so much better when he was involved. And lacking that made a huge difference in the tone of the book. But it's like so disjointed. So I, that's where I also ended up with a four. Okay. So Impact and Legacy. Tim, you get the first stab at that. Stab away. Oh, goody. <laughs> I will, I will, I have, I have my butcher knife right over here. Uh, well, I spent money on those issues. So that impacted my bank account. That was one impact. Um, and I spent time reading it, so now I've lost those hours of my day that I could have been doing something else and reading something better. Uh, I, I, also, oddly, it wasn't long after this, like a couple years after this, that I seriously had to back off on my comic book buying from, from, of new issues. I, and lot, most of my DC books didn't make the cut after I had to cut back on things, and I just – do think that these events were star- and like this one were starting to wear on me. So that's a big thing. I'm like getting away from my personal impact. It's like 
Nothing here mattered. Anything that could have mattered got undone by Final Crisis, as we've said repeatedly, or has never been referenced again. So in continuity, this story just was either undone every chance they got or just completely ignored. I, I'm giving it a one. Ooh. All right, Steve. <laughs> Can you raise this, this up a bit? I mean, there, there is no impact. The, the very second this series was over, everyone just ran away screaming and never came back to it. <laughs> Grant Morrison sitting there, wherever he is around the world, in his laptop going, I think I'll write a few more pages of my uh, crossovers going, what the is this on the shelves? This series is defined by its complete lack of impact and its legacy. Well, no one talks about 2007, 2008 DC as being a golden age at all. About five years ago, I was at the Kapow Comic Convention in London. Have I mentioned I've been to Kapow before? No, no, I haven't. I've, I've only been on the show once. <laughs> hey, 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 hey. Hang on. <laughs> There's only room for one meme on that. <laughs> Just had to wake you up. But I, I met Dan DeDeer, and uh, I sat on a, a, a very sort of frank and honest panel where he was talking about things. He said his proudest time at DC was probably the countdown to infinite crisis through to the end of 52. I, first of all, I couldn't disagree. Those were fantastic years for me as a reader. They are some much loved comics, even though there are problems within those comics, but it's really notable that he stopped right there. The end of 52, 52 week, 52. That's it. There is no countdown week 51. Yeah. This is just horrible. So it also gets a one. (laughs) Okay, so, and to bring this home, I've got to do my semi-score, so um, I'm giving it a three for eventiness, just because it had lots of characters in it, and that's the only reason. The writing, now this is... <laughs> Sorry, based on that, it... any George Perry's double-page spread gets a three. <laughs> yeah, but, but it gets a better art score as well, if it's a George Perry's. Um, for the writing, I'm... I'm honestly doing this from memory and there's one thing that stuck with me and I think it's there's a demon being raised and they use the lyrics of The, the Killing Moon by Echo and the Bunnymen as the as the summoning spell. Do either of you note that? or? Wow. You're, I, no. <laughs> I do remember a demon being raised yes. Uh, oh, that's right. Oh, that was one of the Mary Marvel's parts in there, wasn't it? Where these this coven of young witches does it and they bring up a, a demon that's made up of, I don't even want to say it uh, on this show, of uh, uh, dead babies? Ah, are you kidding me? Thank you for that memory there, uh, oh, Paul. I, Thank I, you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's that's the one. Yeah, I think that's the moment you're thinking of. <gasps> but I, I think it was Adam Beecham was the writer of that one, and I think he decided to have a bit of fun by putting in a lyric of a song that I like in there, so um, I'm going to give it a one for that. Um and for art and covers, <laughs> that gets a one. <laughs> well, I, I like that. I mean, but it's one issue. Adam will be happy. He'll get. He'll put that one up on his wall. Um, art and covers. Nothing is memorable about. It. There's no covers that you want to make a poster of. Um, yeah. So three for that, maybe. And impact and legacy. Um, I think I've done this before. I'm going to give it a zero. I don't think there's any impact, any legacy. So. Shoo. Mm, hmm. Anyway. But this is the time where we add up our scores. So, Tim, you gave it a total score of 10. And Steve went completely nuts and gave it 12 out of 40. <laughs> That's just insane. Yeah. <laughs> I need a drug test. You're a very, you're a very <laughs> kind man. I'm usually, and I'm I mean, usually the, the the soft-hearted one. I'm usually the the the, the positive uh, person. I don't, I don't know how that happened. <laughs> I just point out, saying now that I need the drug test is a bit futile, considering I volunteered for this episode. So. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I gave it a total of seven, but I'm semi, so we halve that at three and a half, and then we round it up to four, and we add all those together, and it gets twenty-six out of a hundred. And does it beat Millennium? I'm going to. It does beat, and it's not as no Millennium beats this uh, trounces <laughs> it, but <laughs> but Genesis is just below it. But part of oh. me feels like that's that's not fair. Genesis actually deserves a higher score than this. <laughs> I am I am very surprised by that result. I am very Genesis. Oh my gosh, <laughs> Genesis actually lowered. That's that's amazing. Yeah, but it's, I mean, Genesis is two points below it, so it's really close, so. There you go, countdown. What a, what a great, um, yeah, thing. Thing. It really took up some time. (laughs) 
Okay, so I'm going to do some feedback now, guys, and back in a minute. And I'm happy to say that we have some nice feedback. We heard from Tim Price on our website, waitingfordoom.com. He said, I haven't reread 52 in a while, but I completely agree with the scoring on this one. There were a lot of storylines involved, but they had room to breathe and were fully fleshed out with some amazing twists to the conclusion. Heartbreak and tragedies and glorious victories all around. And wow, tying with Crisis. Didn't see that coming. Yet another 52 twist. Thanks, Tim. And we heard from Ashford Wright, who said, 2004 was when I took a deep dive into DC Comics by way of Batman No Man's Land, which I was able to give a semi-DC OCD rating to. Thanks very much. By the time DC's 52 rolled out, I was nowhere near as well-versed in DC mythology, but I was definitely spelunking through the Batcave of publisher detective comics as much as possible. I didn't read the 52 comics as they came out, which I agree with you too, was quite a feat. Instead, I read the novelization by Greg Cox, who made the case to this newbie for Booster Gold, humanising him, flaws and all, in a way that made you root for the character. Of course, the space in the novel was much more finite than the weekly issues, so from what I remember, Cox only had the space to centre the story around the aforementioned Booster Gold, with turned wicked skeets, uh, the rise of Batwoman and the origins of one question and the end of another, with some compelling stuff with Black Adam as well. And yes, the creative team displayed the ability to pull this off without DC's Holy Trinity. No shots at Wonder Woman, Superman or Batman, but because of events like this, I usually set my eyes on the peripheral, non-A-list characters because of the masterful feat the creative team was able to produce. In conclusion, listening to this episode reminded me of how much fun I was having reading this stuff at the time. Carry on with DCO's CD, which is appointment listening for me. Ashford. So that's Ashford from the Right On Network that do the Birds of Prey, uh, Feathers and Foes podcast. They also do one on Huntress and... uh, Cassandra Kane Batgirl, really good stuff. And we got an email from Aaron Head Moss, and he said, Another great episode, gentlemen. Dr. Sheepherder is doing a great job with Paul getting him through his OCD. In fact, I may need to see him about my addiction to podcasting. While I enjoyed 52, can you believe the same artist did 52 weekly covers and did a great job? My problem with it is that this was when DC had event after event that never ended. DC does like they do and ruins things by overdoing it. Part of me unfairly holds this against 52, but pulling that out of consideration, 52 was amazing, and while it might be a little higher than deserves, I blame that on the long box crew. They tend to skew things as is. Keep up the great work, and I'm with you until the end, or until Paul gets better. <laughs> Thanks, Aaron. And, uh, yeah, I don't think the scoring of 52 was uh, skewed by the long box guys. I think everybody really praised it highly, and so it was a collective effort, effort to get a really big score like that. And then we got another email from Aaron Headmoss, who um, heard our call for reviews last episode and said, I post a review on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher, and for the weirdest place to post a review, at the IRS building in Butler, in Fresno, California. They're in a men's room with an awkward review for waiting for doom. <laughs> so thank you for that, Aaron. You're going above and beyond, and uh, we'll be sending you a waiting for doom postcard for your efforts. Thank you very much. But uh, thanks for the feedback, and, um, and I think it's time for farewells now. Alright, thanks guys. So um, next time we're coming back, and I think next week we're doing a Waiting for Doom on something. But um, where can people find you, Steve, if they want to find you? Uh, well, I host a podcast called The Fantastic Cast. It is, as the name suggests, a podcast looking at the Fantastic Forum. We go through in order from the beginning of the Marvel Age of Comics, and we look at every issue, every guest appearance, every spin-off and cameo. Uh, and we, we you can find that at thefantasticast.com. We've just broken into the 1980s. Uh, we've just finished Marv Wolfman's run. We've just finished the uh, Pegasus Project saga. So all of those are recent in the feed. John Byrne is coming. 
and yeah looking forward to that hugely Let, let's not talk about Munchsinkevich uh, but yeah you can find the show there and you can find me on Twitter at QuizLacey Q-U-I-Z-L-A-C-E-Y and Tim, you professional podcast guest, where can people find you if they want to find you? If they do want to find me, they can. Twitter is the best place at Tim Price One Seven. Seventeen is not my age, Paul. I tried to clear this up a few times. It's not my age. It's just the number I have for my for my Twitter handle because Tim Price was already taken, and so was Tim Price One. So you know, all the good ones were gone. I, I had to, I had to settle for seventeen. <laughs> I should get all the Tim Prices together and go through the first sixteen and just you know make them fight to the death. That great Adam Buxton oh, joke. Uh, Tim Price seventeen here, seventeenth of the great Tim Price line. <laughs> <laughs> it, it works better with made Tim. up names and high numbers. Oh, see now, so yeah, so you have to so in this means you, next you need to get Tim Price sixteen and then fifteen and then fourteen because you're counting down. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm also going to be a guest on a couple of podcasts coming up. I can't share them just yet, but I also had some appearances earlier this year on the Fire and Water Presents Find Your Joy with Ryan Daly, where we discussed Captain Marvel. Uh, no, not him uh, and not her. The other her, Monica Rambeau from Amazing Spider-Man Annual number 16, as well as the two movies. And I was on the JLI Bwahaha podcast with the Irredeemable Shag, covering the late 80s Mr. Miracle series written by J.M. DeMatteis. Awesome. Anyway, so if anyone wants to get in touch with us, you can uh, get us, uh, send us a tweet at DCOCDcast, and you can also send us an email at DCOCDcast at gmail.com. And of course, I want you all to head over to WaitingForDoom.com and check out the ladder, which shows all the scores, and you can leave comments on the episode there. Uh, Tim does that. He's a very good boy. And I do do that. Yeah. Anyway, uh, thanks, guys, and thanks, everyone, for listening. I'm insanely jealous of everyone who came on this show and only read four issues. Those DC Sweet Adventure of the late nineties. Oh, it's so hard to read four <laughs> issues yeah. of Genesis. Oh no, it's so hard. Yeah, what a what a slog. <laughs> hey, I, I read some tie-ins. I read some tie-ins.